0: And good afternoon, Spark Church. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And first of all, I'd like to make an apology to all the kids today, such as her and him and her. Um, I had planned to put together this lesson, which would integrate all of us, and we'd be running around and doing activities together and getting to know each other. But uh, COVID, number one. Number two, there's not that many of us. Number three, I ran out of time. So uh, I'll be preaching in about a month, and I promise to do it then. We're actually going to have a service where we're going to try to integrate things together and do activities together. Um, and hopefully, if you're here and you're listening to what I say today, it's going to be a little more boring than I normally am. But that's, what, I that's okay. If you guys here listen to me, something might make sense. And so it might be good. Anyways. And now that I torpedoed completely any interest that the kids or the adults might have in what I have to say, welcome. Because actually, this isn't the first time that I've uh, stood up here on a Fourth of July weekend. In actuality, five years ago yesterday... Stacey Ishigaki and I hijacked the Spark worship service for a wedding ceremony. We had gotten married nine months before that up in Seattle, and due to circumstances, we weren't able to celebrate with everyone we wanted to. But to emphasize how important Spark is to our present and to our future, uh, we took over a worship service with the permission of Spark, of course, the, the, the leaders. And um, he's not here today, but there was one person who came for the very first time to Spark. And he was walking in through those doors. Stacy was back there about to you know, process in. And he walked in and he goes, Are we in the right place? Uh, just, we didn't bring a gift. And, he's like, and Stacy said, No, no, don't worry. You're in the right place. Come on up. And so, uh, Spark on the 4th of July is always a good thing for me. And that is one of many asides I'll be making today. So just get ready. And I apologize in advance. Uh, here's another aside while we're going. Like many of you, I'm an avid internet user. I actually do it for work, a lot of stuff for work. Uh, and of course, I have the most serious of intentions when I'm online. But I get sidetracked from time to time. And sometimes I come across random quizzes, and you know, like, that's eh, a waste. No, it's not a waste of time. And so I click on it. Uh, and one example is this one, which I came across a couple of weeks ago. What kind of Christian are you? And I went through some of the questions. So here, uh, as a sampling, Your pastor wants you to lead everyone in song. What do you sing? A, glory, glory, hallelujah. B, amazing grace. C, I wish I could lead. I don't know any of those songs. Or D, I don't sing. I moan. And everyone admires how deeply spiritual I am. Another question. As the congregation is reciting scripture in church, what do you do? Shout out loud, absolutely. That's actually one of the answers. But I wing it, A. B, I take a peek from one of the church's Bibles. and we do have Bibles back there. If you want one, let me know. Uh, C, I recite the verse in three different languages simultaneously with my eyes closed. Or D, while Scripture's be, being read, I shout, What does that mean? Who said that? Is that from the Old or the New Testament? Three, the offering plate's being passed around. We don't do that here. But the offering plate's being passed around. What do you do? A one day I'll get to contribute. B, put in a $10 bill, take out two fives, make some change. C, I put in 10% of my weekly earnings, just as I was told to do when I first joined the church. We don't have a tithing policy here, but. And D, I place my butterscotch candy wrapper in that receptacle passed to me. And so we have a bunch of these types of questions. What place does church gossip have in your life? Who do you rely on for spiritual advice? What percentage of your life does church take up? What type of clothes are you most comfortable wearing to church? How does your pastor refer to you? And we also have these two questions about unspoken rules in your church and a list of rituals that you are and are not comfortable with. And so after you take all these questions, answer all these questions, you end up with this. If your behavior is mostly wrong, you're considered a Christian newbie. If your behavior is wrong some of the time, you're an average believer. If your behavior is wrong just a little bit, you're a vintage Christian. Now, all of this is mildly humorous. Uh, it's tongue-in-cheek, but what makes jokes work is that there's a truth within that everyone can kind of feel. And that truth in this one is that we believe what that what defines us as Christian is how well does our behavior correspond to the norm. We are judged as followers of Jesus by how well we meet each other's expectations. And this isn't unusual because conforming to a group can foster relationships in harmony. But is this what Jesus actually wants of us? A performative lifestyle? Having conversations with only like-minded people, where harmony is the goal? Being holy, does being holy and set apart mean that everyone should act and believe the same way? Today's message is titled, The Never-Ending Debate, and we'll be going through the seventh chapter of John. So let's take a look back at some of the previous chapters that we've covered over the last few weeks. We've looked at John 3. And this had Jesus' uh, conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And Jesus tried to clarify his reasons for coming. And then we heard from John the Baptist who testified to Jesus' identity. We looked at John 4, where Jesus met with the woman at the well, and then with the woman's Samaritan community. And again, the focus was on Jesus' identity. Then in chapter 5, Jesus healed an invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. And then addressed the Jewish leaders about, what else? Identity. And then most recently, we looked at John chapter 6, where among other things, Jesus provided a hard teaching about his identity. And now in chapter 7, any guesses to what Jesus is discussing? Bingo! Unlike the last few chapters of John, in this chapter, Jesus will perform zero miracles. The whole passage is one long conversation among different groups, but it's essentially it's the same conversation happening. And we'll hear about identity and expectations. And the location, for the most part, is going to be Jerusalem, in particular, this spot. And the main characters are going to be Jesus, of course, his brothers, who will soon morph in the story into the crowd, and the religious leaders. I'm taking very careful steps to translate the word Jews, that's found in the passage, into Jewish leaders for context. Everyone in the story is Jewish. Everyone. But the author of John is possibly using the term Jew specifically when he writes it for reasons that we're not going to get into here. So uh, now for the story. After this, and this is Jesus teaching on the bread of life and being the origin of God's care for humanity. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jewish Feast of Booths was at hand. We find Jesus in Galilee, and what's about to take place? The Feast of Booths, an eight-day festival during which observant Jews were to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate God. Except for a 200-year period from the time of Solomon to the destruction of the temple, Jewish people from all over Israel and from all across the Western world came to Jerusalem to celebrate non-stop. For eight days. It was almost a 24 hour party. We're talking music, we're talking trumpets, we're talking singing, we're talking dancing, we're talking acrobatics, we're talking flame juggling. It's a citywide party for one single purpose: to worship God united as the people of Israel. The feast of booths was known as Chag Asah Asif, or the festival of the harvest. In Israel, crops grow in the winter, and most of them are harvested in the spring. But some of the crops are not ready, and they, are, they wait to be harvested in the early fall. And cultural, cultures across the world celebrate these harvest festivals. But to the Jews, it was also a reminder of God's ongoing sustenance. Remember the point of the Sabbath? Every seven days, God commands us to take a break. As a reminder, that it is ultimately not our work that keeps us going, but God and his work. That's also the point of the Feast of Booths. Water is a major theme of the feast. By tradition, during the Feast of Booths is when God determines how much rainfall will occur in the winter. And in a land of fertile soil, surrounded by desert, water sustains society. Every Jewish festival involves grain and wine sacrifices, but this feast in particular includes a daily offering of water. The water would come from a wellspring just outside of Jerusalem called the Mayim Hashiloach. You might have heard of this by another name, the Pool of Siloam, which we'll encounter in John chapter 9. So, feast the booths, 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 booths. Where's the booths? What's with the word booths, or sukkot, as they say in Hebrew? Pictured here is a sukkah, or a temporary booth made from palm fronds and canvas. Here's another one with slightly better furnishings, but it's still a temporary framework. Here's a sukkah located at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in the middle of Jerusalem. Pretty fancy. And here is a photo of the Jewish quarter in the old city of Jerusalem before the Feast of Sukkot. And you can see all of the sukkot being assembled and attached to homes into restaurants. This October, our friends here at Etz Kaim will set up their own sukkah on the patio out there. So what's with all the booths? Well, in Leviticus 23, God says to the Israelites, you shall dwell in Sukkot for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in Sukkot, that your generations may know that I have made the people of Israel dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, living in these booths or these tents are another reminder of God's ongoing sustenance. I took care of your ancestors for 40 years in the desert, and they never settled down. They lived in temporary shelters while I fed them and clothed them and taught them and guided them for 40 years. I will do the same for you. I am doing the same for you. So this is where we find Jesus at the start of our passage. And right now you're thinking, you've been talking for seven minutes. There's 52 verses in this passage. You've only gone through one, two. I know. I'll be efficient about this, so don't don't worry. (laughs) We'll break it down into three parts, and here's the first part. Now, the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus' is brothers, and if you're not Catholic, feel free to substitute brothers with cousins. It's not a problem. His brothers give him some seemingly solid advice. Leave Galilee now. Go to Judea where your ministry can really take flight. We have the entire Jewish world descending on Jerusalem right now. And you're up here in the sticks. You want people to believe in what you have to say, right? Is there any better time than now to take your show onto the big stage and perform some miracles? Sukkot is filled with spectacles. Remember, there's the fire and the dancing and the singing. It's constant. Your miracles would very much fit into all of that. And plus, we're a good Jewish family. We live together as a family. We travel together as a family. We arrive at the feast together as a family. We celebrate there as a family. Let's go. Jesus' response, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come to address the world or more specifically the systems within the world that hinder and handicap what God is doing. When I do that, it will open the floodgates and people will be scrutinizing between what is of God and what you think is of God. Plus your time's always here and the world can't hate you. You're going down there to worship and relax and enjoy. I would be going down there to stir the pot and I'm stirring the pot right here and already people want me dead. So what do you want? This whole exchange feels a little bit like the temptation of Jesus by Satan that we find in the other gospel books. The brothers are trying to go Jesus into doing something that he doesn't want to. And knowing the whole story, we know that Jesus will be arrested, tortured, and executed in Judea several chapters from now. So now doesn't seem like the right time to go. Galilee has been a place for Jesus to build his ministry, and so he chooses to stay. So thus far, here's our scorecard. The brothers and the religious leaders are reacting to Jesus' teaching on, I am the bread of life, I am the source of God's provision for for you, from chapter 6. And they don't believe what he's saying. And the religious leaders are a little less concerned about Jesus' well-being. And Jesus is not going to Jerusalem, but he's staying in Galilee. Or is he? Chapter 2. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up. Not publicly, but in private. Why go later and in secret? It seems strategic. First of all, Jesus is acting independently rather than conforming. Looking at the passage again, the Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Again, this suggests that Jesus is being strategic about this. People expect Jesus to be there. They've been hearing about his ministry up in Galilee. And since he's an observant Jew, he will follow God's commands to come up, to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. By not coming on time, however, Jesus has built anticipation and thrown people off. You can see his reputation has preceded him. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of him. People's conversations right now feel a little bit gossipy. And you know, when the teacher comes around, the note passing stops, and then the whispering dies down. They want to talk about Jesus and rightly want to figure out who he is and what he's doing. But they don't want to get in trouble for it. And you can see why the Jewish leaders are nervous about all this. Sukkot is a time when we celebrate our God as the collective people of Israel. Together, united in spirit and in truth. And we have a system in place to run all this. And yet the people here are talking about some rabbi from up north. They're not focused on why we're really supposed to be here. Now we move up to part two of our passage, and in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. First of all, what did Jesus teach? We don't know. It doesn't say. But based on his response, we can infer that Jesus is talking about the law, or the Torah, which is the five first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Next, the Jewish leaders therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Notice that they weren't speaking directly to Jesus. They were speaking to each other about him, as though they were hearing about all of this after the fact, or as if it was beneath them to speak to Jesus as a fellow teacher. And they marveled, which in this case might not be a good thing. Because you see, the Jewish leaders expected teachers to be associated with a known religious teacher who taught and mentored them. You'll hear the Apostle Paul, for example, splash his study under Rabbi Gamaliel as his badge of authority. And a lot of people will say, you know, I study under Danielle here. So, so it kind of has this flow to it. Um, you get this badge of authority when you can say, I studied under this person. And the Jewish leaders had these credentials. But apparently Jesus came without them. So they assumed that his study of Torah was lacking. Yeah, his teaching seemed solid, but without that academic lineage to lean on, how solid could it be? Jesus challenged this expectation. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, my authority comes from God. And if your desire is to do the will of God or to keep the law of Moses, then you'll discern that my teaching is keeping the law of Moses. All right, then. So the little leisure has a question. Jesus provided an answer. It wasn't the answer they were expecting. It might not even be acceptable to them, but it addressed their question about authority. But then Jesus lobbed this grenade. Has Moses, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Wait, what? Where's that coming from? And that's effectively what the crowd said when they heard Jesus. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus explained. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. What work is he talking about? This one. John chapter 5. Jesus healed an invalid man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders called it a violation of God's law. Jesus continued, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here Jesus is using a rabbinic principle called kal v'chomer, or light and heavy. If a command from God applies in a small circumstance, or a light circumstance, then it also applies in a greater one, or a heavier circumstance. Here's one law. All Jewish males were to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. There's a second law. All Jewish people were to keep the Sabbath or to refrain from work. But if the baby boy's eighth day of life landed on the Sabbath, then which command should be kept? Circumcision or refraining from work? The answer that every Jewish person commonly expected was, circumcision was the weightier command, so it should be done even on the Sabbath. Jesus was saying, all right, you're interacting with one small body part, on the Sabbath, and that's okay. But me healing an entire person's body on the Sabbath is not okay? Here's the other thing. In order to make Jesus appear more unique, Christians will often point out that Jesus' action on the Sabbath was unprecedented. But it wasn't. It was common Jewish interpretation that healing or caring for one's injuries on the Sabbath was entirely within God's will. So what is Jesus saying here? It's not that you religious leaders think that I did something wrong. It's that you know I did something right. And still you say I broke the law. Thus the last sentence. Do not judge by appearances. Don't pretend and spin my actions as wrong. Stop acting. Stop being hypocrites about this. Because you would have done the same thing in my place. And now... In, the, in my mind, at least, it's as if the crowd has been watching a rap battle between Jesus and the religious leaders. After hearing what Jesus had to say, Oh, snap! Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they said nothing to him. Oh! 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 Can it be that the authorities really think, know that this is the Christ? But the crowd thinks that Jesus doesn't meet the expectations of the Christ, the Messiah. They say his origins should be a mystery, but everybody knows that Jesus is from Galilee. So Jesus reiterates, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The authority upon which I teach and my origins are the same. The one who sent me, God. Again, all of this feels very strategic. Jesus is laying out his argument about his identity bit by bit, and it's been effective thus far. It was in everyone's mind from the get-go. He hasn't been arrested yet. And at the start, people were wondering, is he a good man? Is he trying to deceive us? But now, he has some people believing that not only is he a good man, he might even be the Messiah. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Jewish leaders, however, are not down with this. They're seeing how his presence and teaching is dividing the people on a feast of convocation when they're supposed to be called together to worship. And the leaders send people out to arrest Jesus because of that. Jesus responds with a prophecy over what he's, doing, uh, what he's going to experience soon, his death, his resurrection, his return to God. And this confuses the Jewish leaders even more. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? In other words, is he leaving Israel to teach Jews outside the law? Or, this could be an insult. Yeah, 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 go tell it to the Greeks. Yeah, 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 they love this sort of thing. This thing has no place here. Go ahead. So, back to our scorecard. This is where we stand. Jesus is presenting himself as from God. And thus able to interpret the law correctly, even if no one wants to admit it. The crowd? They're divided between him being a good man or a liar. But after hearing Jesus teach, some are now wondering if he's more than just a good man. The religious leaders? They're willing to concede some points. But without the right authority, his interpretation is invalid. So is he. Finally, we come to the last day of the Feast of Sukkot. And Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes me, as the scripture has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And as an aside, you can see there in the italics, it says, Now he, this he said about the Spirit, whom those whom believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had, was not yet glorified. The author of John often provides these short little commentaries to provide some useful cultural context, or in this case, a theological interpretation of what Jesus said. And since I'm up here right now and talking with people who ostensibly read their Bibles, uh, let me offer a recommendation. Read biblical commentaries. You all know study Bibles, where you have the biblical text, and then you have the notes underneath it that explain the particular text or offer more context for it. And you can see that on the left. The ratio is usually three to one, three three parts uh, Bible text and one part notes. In a biblical commentary, it's reversed. And sometimes the ratios were greater. One part biblical test, five part notes. It's like a Bible or study Bible on steroids with less Bible text in it. Uh, the library, if you ever want to check these out, the library over here at ETS has a few of these, especially Old Testament uh, uh, commentaries. Uh, St. Patrick's Seminary in, Ma- uh, Man- in Menlo Park has a great collection, even though it's kind of limited right now. Uh, and then Santa Clara University, their library has a, a lot of good commentaries there. And it's a mixed bag. Some are great, offering insights and new paths to research. Some are well-cited and bring lots of outside sources into their interpretations. And them, some actually limit their biases. And they offer competing interpretations that allow you to come to your own understanding. And then there are others that are basically just puffed-up devotionals. And you know, there's a couple of citations in there, there's a couple of outside sources. But there's usually a main theme that they're trying to hit. It's basically just, just reading the book and they have a theme that they want to arrive at. Um, And there's a lot of different types of commentaries that lie in between. But if you're part of a Bible study or if in your own study you're coming across really interesting stuff and you want to learn more about it, check out a Bible commentary. It can really enrich the experience. Aside over, back to the story. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now why is this important? Well, the Mishnah, which is a book that expounds on uh, the Torah, actually you can find a couple copies in the library over there. The Mishnah says that on the last day of Sukkot there was a special ceremony for the pouring out of water on the temple altar. So Jesus was speaking on the day when this specific ceremony was going to take place. And then all of this connects to a vision from the prophet Jeremiah or sorry, Zechariah, where on a momentous day God will fight against the nations of the earth in Israel's behalf. And then upon God's victory, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, and the nations shall come to worship God on the Feast of Booths. So it's no mistake that Jesus is preaching about living water on the final day of Sukkot. And just as before, Jesus' teaching really gets the crowd gossiping. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Again, this feels all very strategic on Jesus' part. He's laid out the argument about his identity bit by bit. He's gotten some positive movement, but still on the whole, the crowd's not really certain who he is. There was a division among the people. And all of this occurs on the last day. This division occurs on the last day when it's the culmination of this gathering of Jews from all over the world who are supposed to be celebrating harmoniously. And of course, the Pharisees as a group seemingly remain unconvinced. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. The Pharisees want to define those who follow Jesus and those who don't as the unwashed masses, and the learned Pharisees. Because clearly the crowd, filled with unlearned, non-observant Jews who fall for this sort of thing, they are being deceived by this guy. But we wise, educated prushtim? No way. And you can't blame them for thinking this way, because we do it. Today, we say, if only those on the wrong side of the political spectrum were better educated, then they would agree with us or if only those who are wrong about this social issue were more informed, we can get things done. We all want certainty when things get complicated. But unfortunately, we're wrong. Unity is not that simple. And the Pharisees were wrong too. Here comes Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who met with Jesus back in chapter 3, saying, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus' pushback is saying this, no, not all of the religious leaders are certain about who Jesus is. You can't dismiss those who believe in him as uneducated rubes because I am here, and I am one of you, and I have questions. To end the passage, the Pharisees take a parting shot at Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That sounds like a nice burn to end things with, Right? Maybe you're one of them with your own agenda. We all know the scriptures say there's no prophet from Galilee, that backwater, that place out in the sticks. Here's the thing. There is a prophet from Galilee. You know the prophet Jonah of Jonah and the big fish in Nineveh fame? That Jonah. The second book of Kings states that Jonah is from Gath-Hefer, just three miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. The parting shot from the Pharisees misses Nicodemus. And as the teachers educated in the scriptures, they know they're wrong. But as we've experienced over the last few years, when you don't want to be right, suddenly facts can become become very flexible, don't they? So here's our final scorecard. Jesus again reiterates that he is the source of God's provision for the people. The people in the crowd are now either certain he is the Messiah or certain that he isn't the Messiah. And the Pharisees who are locked in on the no side are now showing their own signs of division. So what's our conclusion? Jesus causes division. And that reflects something that Jesus said in the book of Matthew. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But then we see chapters from now, as Jesus approaches the end of his life, he prays that we all be one. So in our passage for today, does Jesus want division or does he want unity? He wants division for the purpose of unity. Let me go back for just a moment to make one little skinny point from a theologian named Thomas Brody. In the middle of our passage, Jesus highlighted this moment of hypocrisy by the religious leaders. He's criticizing their use of the law for the purpose of entrapping people, for the purpose of punishment. As Brody defines it, the law is the divine word of God intended to bring divine care to his people. Though the specifics of God's individual laws may not seem like it, at the root and the heart of each of God's 613 commandments in the Torah is this intent. Love God, love your neighbor. If, however you forget that divine care is the intention of the law, then all that remains is the divine word to be carried out ruthlessly with no thought for why other than God said so. The flourishing of human life and all of creation is no longer the reason the law exists to sustain only itself or as Stephen Colbert once said in satirical debate, it's not my logic It's God's logic written in the Bible, every word of which is true. And we know every word is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true. And if you remember from earlier in the sentence, every word of the Bible is true. So Jesus is talking about two events here, circumcision and healing. Both were performed on the Sabbath, a day of recognizing God's divine care. And Jesus is making this comparison during Sukkot, which again is a celebration of God's divine care throughout the year and throughout history. What's the difference between these two acts? Circumcision on the Sabbath is promoted by the religious leaders, and it is literally the cutting of the human body. Now, I'm not trying to criticize the practice of the religious practice of circumcision, I'm just pointing this literal fact out. Circumcision is an act of physical injury. In contrast, Jesus' healing of a man on the Sabbath is an act of physical restoration. The religious leaders are using the law to justify injury, while Jesus uses the law to justify care. And that is the point of division between Jesus and the religious leaders. If the leaders recall the true purpose of the law of Moses, then they will be able to understand Jesus and the source of his authority, carrying out the word and the will of God for the purpose of caring for the people of God. And that's Thomas Brody's point. Where does that leave us? Well, what does it mean to follow God's will? What does it mean to uphold God's law? Who is Jesus in light of the law? And what is the law in light of Jesus? This is the debate we see throughout the book of John, particularly in today's passage. And the debate took place then, took place decades and centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection. It takes place today. And it will take place as long as someone asks the question, who is Jesus to me? Sukkot is normally celebrated in the fall, and you know they would have the, the sukkah set up out there, and it would be a nice object lesson. And I, when I saw this passage initially, I really want, wish that we had pushed this back until October. However, this story is very much apropos for this moment. There's a person who wants to point out the systems in the society that harm and hinder. And society's leaders want him to shut up to be quiet, to get along with everybody else, especially on a holiday when they're supposed to be celebrating what they have, not addressing what, where they failed. Kind of sounds like our country. We have systems that protect law enforcement officers from accountability for unwarranted violence against citizens. We have policies that enable us to send people fleeing from war and violence right back to those places. We have laws criminalizing the teaching about historical racism, because it will make some students uncomfortable and introduce the vision where there is none. And in the past few weeks, we have witnessed our struggle with the right interpretation of law. If given a situation, I wouldn't be able to tell you the right answer with any level of certainty. But what I can say is, every law ever conceived by a human being is an idea designed to portray, support, or carry out an objective proof, truth, for the. Purpose of human flourishing. What human flourishing looks like to different people is subjective. But we must never forget that care is the purpose of law. Or else what we turn what was meant to love, to honor, to correct, and to grow into something that hates, that demeans, that punishes, that decays. We can be proud of this country and all that it has done and what it does to benefits its citizens and our world. And because we want the best for our fellow citizens, we must look at our country with appreciation and accountability. There definitely is division in our country. But like in the passage today, that division can lead to progress if it's properly managed. One trait that defines us as Americans is a willingness to use our own freedom of expression to face what is difficult and to fight for progress even when others tell us to stop. As Senator Carl Schurz once said, my country... Right or wrong? If right, to be kept right, and if wrong, to be set right. And what defines us as Christians is not how we perform to each other's expectations, but who we love and how we love beyond those expectations. We'll continue together next week with John chapter 9, when Pastor Tom will tell us an amazing story about how Jesus applies the law in real time. Care, divine word. But right now, we gather together to celebrate Jesus himself and his unending love for us through this sacrifice, through this symbol of sacrifice and redemption and relationship with God. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave it to thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. All are welcome in our table.